Hey, listeners and potential fans! As you may know, this is the last episode of the Chinte Network podcast. And before we begin, I just want to say that I've truly enjoyed being your host and having the opportunity to explore the different stories and voices of our community. In our podcast series finale, I talked to Gopongjo Momye, or Carl, as he's more commonly known. He's the dedicated and driven vice president of the Yangon Sailing Club and founder of Trash Heroes Myanmar. Join as we discuss the potential of esports in Myanmar, his friendship with Ong La, and COVID's impact on our environment. Uh, why don't we begin with your origin story then? Right. So to backtrack earlier, uh, I was born in 1985, and I went to ISY's pre-K one. I can't even remember how old I was, but from pre-K one, pre-K two. I graduated in 2002. So if you do the math, I think I joined the school back in the 90s. So I've been a, I've been an alumni all the way throughout that time. Now to answer your question, it started with my father wanting me to be in sports. Actually, before I was a sailor, I was a, I started out in tennis. And at eight years old, I was already playing tennis, and I kept playing tennis till I was about 11, 12. But the first time I went and tried out sailing was well my dad basically said when i was nine nine ish ten ish you know he was like hey listen why don't you try out sailing if you don't like it you can do whatever you want i had i was i remember when i was a kid i was i was a little brat i was like you know i'm not gonna go sailing my brother does that i'm gonna be different but when i entered my first junior course i honestly met friends that are still my best friends today yeah i'm no joke we've been friends since we were 10 you know it was all because of sailing and it wasn't the love of the sports, it was actually the love of my friends. But eventually down the line, you know, we, I got more serious into it and then went the national route. Now, um, my dad has been part of the Yangon Sailing Club, I mean, uh, for a long time. When he was in his bachelor days, he was always a part of that sailing club. So sailing was a very important thing to him. You know, not just sailing, but the actual Yangon Sailing Club itself. So my brother joined when he was around 10 or 11, and then finally I followed suit. I gave up tennis eventually when I was 12 and just started focusing on sailing. And ever since then, I'm still a part of the club. It's a, it's a huge part of my life. Uh, I can say my younger days growing up at that club, it taught me so many things that school didn't teach me. And like I said, you know, I, I still have my best friends from that place till this day. We're still having a beer on Fridays at the sailing club. When you say that you learned a lot from, from the sailing club, things that you didn't learn from school, could you maybe uh, share three like crucial lessons from the sport that uh, really helped you with your, your life? Well, I would say number one, definitely the culture. I mean, growing up in ISY, you have to understand, you know, you're, you're with international kids. It's a very different crowd. I mean, I still have my ISY friends and then I have my sailing friends. I still hang out with both till this day. I mean, I still have friends from third grade who, who are actually here right now, and we're still friends to this day. But if I didn't have the sailing club, I would say I would be less in touch with my culture, my, my nationality, because, you know, in ISY at that time, it was all about like English and speaking English and understanding all sorts of things. And they didn't really teach you. For example, you couldn't take Myanmar as a second language. I believe you can take that today. Like we didn't have that. So I had to learn my uh, Burmese or Myanmar language through a, a tuition teacher. However, growing up at that club, just talking to like local kids, you know, like, like people from all walks of life, 
I was hanging out with not just member kids, but I was also hanging out with the children of the workers that work at the sailing club. So it really taught me how to be, I guess, humble, like to understand all walks of life. So, you know, I would go to ISY and they went to the Myanmar schools and we would have our differences and like there would be things that they do that I didn't understand. Like the cool things that Myanmar kids do, I had no idea. And I would be like, well, this is what the ISY kids do. And they'd be like, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> and I found that balance. It's, it's two, two totally different worlds, man. Without the sailing club, I don't think I would have ever understood my own culture or my nationality. I mean, sailing club, I was there every weekend. So it was that great connection. And uh, I guess number two is sports. The, the sport of sailing taught me a lot. I guess those would be not three things, but the two major things that I can think of in my head right now that, that really played a significant role, a positive role in my life. You mentioned the importance of maintaining your cultural heritage, which is the Myanmar language. And that was definitely aided by interacting with locals, right? And that was your- Yes, locals. Anyway. I'm a local, but that's, I have to say locals. <laughs> and the reason why is because I had the same experience in, in ISY where it was reinforced that we only speak English in the classroom. And coming from Thailand, being of a Chinese ethnicity, I did the same thing you did, which is I had a tutor come in and teach me my supposed mother tongue. but. English ended up being my mother tongue. I think I dream in English as well. I don't know about you. Uh, is that the case for you as well? <laughs> that is your mother tongue, your dream tongue. That is correct. And so you were saying that uh, sports was the third, just being athletic, being fit. I wouldn't say that. I mean, more than that, any sports will teach you that. But sailing, like, we had a tough coach. My coaches in the early days, man, I was scared of two people, my dad and my coach. I mean, when it came to discipline, like, like he can really, he, he'll kick your ass, sorry. But, you know, even my dad won't be as brutal as my coach. And at a young age, discipline, responsibility, those things were being just put in your head. The third thing, I guess, was because at a very young age, we were lucky enough to travel the world. I mean, I honestly went to so many places because of sailing. And all the time I was missing school. I had to, you know, take leave of absence from school. But I got to travel all over the world to compete in different types of competitions from Asia to Europe. Uh, that experience, I honestly, is it's unforgettable. You know, I, I can't replace that with anything. And it was because of sailing. Like most people go on family vacations. Our family vacation was going somewhere to compete. Through that, I met a lot of international friends, not just from school, but like in competitions. I have so many people that I know in the sailing community. Till this day, I'm working for the Myanmar Yachting Federation and my nemesis, my rival, competitor, he's the manager of the Singapore sailing team. And yes, we used to be rivals, but now we're like the closest of friends. You know, we talk about all sorts of things like the difficulties of managing a team and we bounce ideas off each other. Yes, when it comes to the sea games or competitions, yes, we're there to kill each other. You know, if it's not me, my team is. But, you know, when the race is over, hey, it's the same guys that I'm having a beer with, which is like the coolest thing ever. That actually is the main focus of sports. It's, it's bringing people together to engage in a kind of combat, right? But then afterwards, we come together in peace. But when it comes to sailing, how much time were you spending in the Yangon Sailing Club? Honestly, it was brutal, man. Like, you have school, then you got tuition, you know, which was, man, that sucked a lot for me, going to tuition. And then you had training. That was my life, you know? And then I had friends going out on Fridays and I couldn't go out because Saturday at 6 a.m. is lineup. Where, you know, we got to get ready for physical. It was kind of tough, man. So I spent a lot of time there, a lot, you know? Well, was it just you? Or you said that your brother also sailed. So I'm guessing yes, two of you yes. were rivals as well? Uh, no, eventually we, <laughs> we, were, uh, we were on the same boat where it takes two people to sail. Oh. So uh, me and my brother, 
we sailed together for a very long time. Oh, I see. I see. So your brother was your partner, and so when you went correct on the, uh, on the competitions, uh, the biggest one being, I'm guessing, the Sea Games. Our most successful and biggest, yes. I mean, oh. we've been to World Championships, we've been to European Championships, you know, Asian Games, and but successfully Sea Games. But will I say it's the biggest? I mean, World Championships are huge. But when it comes to water sports in Myanmar, like where's the situation at? Uh, because I have no idea what it's like for that world to be a part of Yangon. Um, I mean, it's the situation's the, the same throughout the entire sports industry or every sports. I mean, if you take a look at basketball, back in the in the well, in my time was the '90s. The Southeast. Let's just talk Southeast Asian nations. Back then, you know, it was quite competitive when it came to at least sailing because it was a it was a new sport. Programs were only now developing, which have already developed in America and Europe and Asia was following suit. So in the '90s, uh, it was okay, but as you know, the countries like Thailand and Singapore began to really develop. So did their sports, and then you start seeing a big technological gap, a financial gap between the budgets, and that's where Myanmar starts lagging behind. Because at the end of the day, man, if you're running a national team or whether it be basketball, swimming, you know, uh, a country that can support or have a bigger budget, they just have more of a competitive edge. So it's been tough uh, in the late twenties, you know, trying to keep up with these nations, but we do the best we can. Do you have you seen an, an improvement in in terms of Myanmar's like level of competition over the past few years that you've been you've been back and involved in the sport? Well, certainly, you know, if you look at football, that's where the priority lies in uh, in our in our sports ministry, where a lot of emphasis is put on football, and it it, it is uh, the, the the biggest sport until Allah came along, and you know, like he he became the biggest, uh, you know, fighting MMA became a huge thing, but you know, other sports like us. Swimming, basketball—it's been quite a struggle. I can honestly tell you. Let's just say, uh, take a look at a nation like Thailand or Singapore, whose sports budget in uh, swimming is a hundred dollars. Comparing apple to apple with nations like Singapore or Thailand, who have a hundred dollars to spend on their on their swimming program, Myanmar could probably only spend ten to fifteen dollars, maybe twenty. Wow. You know, that is a huge disparity. And you know, with these days, technology is playing a huge part, whether it be in equipment or in terms of training programs, everything is developing and advancing such a rapid pace. And if you can't afford it, you're left doing the same old things that you've been doing since the past decades. And if you can't improve like that, when you get into competition, it's really tough. In sailing specifically, it's like racing cars. We're racing boats. When you go into a competition and your boat was the boat that you sailed back in 2013, and you're using the same boat to compete in 2019, which we actually do, it's tough because nations like Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia—they're bringing in the latest 2019 model. You know, comparing apples to apples, man. Like they just have an advantage over that. Oh wow! I didn't even know that you're using boats that are almost 10 years old. Then, when the, the rest <laughs> of sea nations are, are are using the latest gear, how how can you even compete? It would be near impossible to place top three. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. It gradually just becomes harder and harder. I mean, again, you're a basketball player, right? I think you, you know the Jekasan Gwyn. I'm sure. I do. I do. Yeah. So imagine you have to train. In that court, when let's say another school like ISY has to train there, let's just say, but then you got Room Rudy or the other international schools where they have three courts. They they have a coach, they have a statistician, they have a psychologist, they have a a physiotherapist. You know, like when you have just that court, I mean, they're gonna have a competitive advantage over you, don't you think? Oh yeah, for sure. I、uh, mean, you could have Michael Jordan on your team. Like, if you have Michael Jordan on your team, well, 
you know, hey, all that goes out the window and Michael Jordan's going to take Chintes to the next level and we win CSAC, right? But right. yeah, athletes like all uh, come once in a century or something like that. It's true, man. They're one in a billion for sure. Yeah. You know. did, did you ever, did you get the chance, speaking of Michael Jordan, have you seen The Last Dance, the, the Netflix documentary? Beautiful. Right? Beautiful. Yeah, man. It really shines a light on what it takes to be champ. And also the politics, the, the money behind everything. You, you don't know. As, as a casual viewer or a fan, none of that actually dawns on you unless you actually are part of the industry, unless you're part of the, the game. Absolutely. What most fans and what most competitors know is what they see on TV. You know, or what they watch on YouTube, but to bring you that show, I mean, the things that go behind the scenes are just mad. It's not easy. There's so many bits and pieces and parts that, you know, have to come together to make all that happen. And being in the sports industry, I mean, as an athlete, you know, I was just focused on racing, but as eventually when I became a coach, uh, a manager to the vice president level, you start to see that, wow, there's so many things behind it that you have to figure out and you don't know, have to do perfectly if you're going to have. Uh, that competitive edge for your athlete. So it's insane. And when going back to that Michael Jordan Netflix series, like Michael Jordan could, like even if he had the worst shoes, even if he had the worst facilities, like the guy's mentality, that, well, like I said, like you said, once it comes once in a billion, you know, then that throws all the statistics and the science out the window. But on a, on a regular basis or on a normal basis, yeah, that doesn't happen. When it comes to the actual development of a sport, and you're talking about the, the cost of actually competing on a world uh, level, I feel like the highest chance for Myanmar to compete would be to go into something that's actually disrupting the way things were, and which is esports. I think when it comes to having the help that you need, the materials that you need to compete, esports is probably the most cost effective because whatever you need to learn would be online. And I feel like in terms of the competition, Myanmar can definitely have a chance. I just feel like when it comes to the sports that require human talent or a coach, like really, really highly trained coaches, that's not something that Myanmar can afford. What do you think about the, the esports uh, development of Myanmar? Then? <laughs> so uh, let, me, let me ask you something. Am I talking to a gamer or? Uh, I dabble in Dota. But okay. it's been a while now since I've gotten to, to play it seriously. Whenever I get a chance to, to try it, it, it's only like an hour game and I'm, I'm losing to, to 12 year olds now, you know? So it doesn't really feel good. It, it, <laughs> it makes you realize that, you know, you, some things you just got to leave behind. It's, it's, it's past. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's funny how you, you asked me that. Like, I mean, I mean eSports, in my, in my job, I have to understand what the world is going through and I have to look at different sports industries and see how they survive. How I mean, I can't just focus on sailing. I got to look at what other countries are doing. Now, if I'm supposed to build a program that's similar to, let's just say, Singapore, there's no way I'm going to compete with these guys if I follow their same program. I have to think differently. You know, I, I'm not going to fight a war with, you know, big guns and tanks. I'm not going to win that war. I got to fight them in a different method that they can't win me in. So in order to do that, I had to look at other industries. And yes, turns out esports is one of them. Uh, I'm a gamer. And last year, sorry, not last year, the year before, I competed in the, the, the Nationals uh, in Yumar. They had an esports tournament. And one of the games that I play is StarCraft. And StarCraft is a game that has been around since the 90s. I mean, that was my first strategic game that I ever played. So anyways, I signed up for the, for the game and there was like five people or less. And I'm like, holy crap. And I looked at the room and I'm like, I'm 33. <laughs> and these guys are like 20 plus or teens, right? 
Right. And I'm like, oh man. So I actually trade for it. But the funniest thing was, yeah, I eventually won the competition and I and I got 500 bucks. Really? I have never, I got 500 bucks. I've been sailing for more than 20 years and all the competition combined, the prize pool never reached that much. When I got, when I got a gold medal in 2001 for, uh, for sailing, my government gave me 1,500 bucks. That's for a gold medal. A Singaporean would receive $100,000, okay? What? Right. So for, for, yeah, what, right? And then for gaming, I got 500 bucks for this small little tournament that I played with five people against, you know? The industry, like you said, is growing so fast and esports have taken off. Like the, the we have Hog Sports, Esports uh, Federation, it's called Hog. I don't know if you know about these guys. They have a full on federation. They competed in the last SEA Games back in 2019. For the first time in SEA Games history, there was esports. And Nymar was, there was an equal level of playing field. As long as you have internet and you spend the hours, you can compete with anyone. Yeah, esports is, it, it blew the water. It, it doesn't make any sense. You know, esports is ridiculous, man. Like the sponsorships they get. Like you play Dota. I'm assuming you heard about the international. Of course, of course. We, we tune in, uh, my friends and I, we will gather and we'll watch it together and uh, analyze the, the pros and what they're doing to, you know, sometimes make bets on, on who's going to win as well. So, yeah. The International this year, I, I believe, has raised over $30 million for the prize pool. That's just from the contributions of players. Wow, $30 million. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know that number, but I do know that if you win Dota, Internet, the international don't doesn't the team get like a million dollars or something like that like it's incredible a million dollars per player now <laughs> because oh uh, that, that's like come on man you know like how did you do that like how <laughs> you know no. i mean my challenge right now is if i'm sticking to the same program that i've been doing like hey guys sailing is fun parents come on you know there's a hundred kids i guarantee you 95 of them are going to go to the esports federation Okay, maybe not 95. Some will go to the football and all that. But, you know, I'll be lucky to get five kids left behind to try sailing. Right. You know, right. so it forces me to think differently. Think like these guys. Like, how do you make sailing more attractive? How do you bring in the sponsors? How do you bring in media? I mean, esports has shown the way and the rest of us have been sleeping. But now it's like, I don't even look at other sailing programs. I look at esports. I, I use them as like, okay, what are you guys doing? I mean, I know their president. So I would walk in, I'd play games, and I'm just checking out what he's doing. Now he's talking about having streamers and all oh, the, the ways to make money out of it. it, it it's insane, man. And, you know, money wins games, bro. I'm not going to lie. Whoever says it doesn't is lying. Yeah, but money talks. Bro. Money talks, man. You know, and now I, I've been trying to find sponsors for my sailing program. And, you know, they look at it. And all these guys care about is viewership, attendance, and all that. And, you know, I'll be lucky to have Coca-Cola give me a few cans. KFC, you know, feed my kids like a meal for one competition. You look at esports, they've locked in Ordu, they've locked in the big names, you know, they got banks and their sponsorships are more than my budget. Geez, there's one, one I'm sure one of their sponsors is my entire budget for the program, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. they just have to buy computers. They don't even have to buy boats. That's, <laughs> very, true. That's very true. Only qualm yeah, that I yeah. have with esports is that it's not actually physical. Everything is mental and there's so many issues that come out from that, like complications with health. I feel like the very elite gamers, they all have the problem of maintaining their, their wellness, their, their well-being. And that might be a problem in the future. They're going to have to make sure that there's some kind of balance, I feel. Otherwise, I don't know. I think gaming has a threshold. Like at some point it becomes unhealthy. I mean, I fully agree with you. But my counter uh, argument 
if I was to speak for the gaming community, I would certainly say that, you know, if you look at the statistics, you won't find a pro gamer older than 25. Very rare, yeah. you know? Yeah. Usually these new guys that are 16, they're just way faster. Yeah. So yes, that's correct. You'll probably miss out your end of your teens being you know, on the computer, but then eventually you're gonna have to pull out. And, and by then, you know, you can work on your health and all that. I mean, it's a mind game, Gaby. Like if you tell parents, hey, this kid is really good at this game, you should put them in esports, they'll be like, no way. However, when I ask them, do you respect the chess player Kasparov? Oh yeah, I know that chess player. He was, you know, Russia's number one. Well, you look up to him, but you won't look up to a gamer. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? I know exactly. Like chess in the back, back in the day, chess was a huge thing. I mean, America and Russia were at it. Like to them, these were big things to them. Yeah, yeah. But when they look at gaming, it's like, oh, that's kid stuff. You know, it's like, well, your kid can actually bring you a million dollars. Is it still kid stuff? You know, like, <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's just a change of concept, man. But I fully agree that, yes, I've been talking to the Federation here and they're now, you know, before these kids would just eat noodle soup for like a week and just be on the computer. But now they're addressing the issue where they limit the screen time. Nutrition is important. Resting is important. So they're making sure that these kids are not playing 20 hours a day, but like the professional teams are really now bringing in these specialists to fix this or to, to deal with this issue that you're talking about. Yeah, that's good. Then there it is. They're, they're getting ahead of the issue and, and counteracting the problem. And that I think is, is a good call on their part. What was your favorite uh, memory competing in all these different places? The good memories are when you win. I can't, I, there's no one. Every time you win and you're on top of the podium, like, you can't compare that feeling is literally you're on drugs you know like it's it's such a high that's you know you you worked all year or maybe you worked for a decade for it you know and when you get it like when you're on that podium the competition is like a couple of hours but you will spend years to get to that point and honestly all the good ones are the ones where i'm on the podium those are the best but you know out of a hundred races i've been on the podium like three times whereas the 97 i failed i guess it's it's going to battle, it's, it's the preparation, getting ready for it. It's the whole thrill of it. Ask any sportsman, like, does he regret it? Some do, I did it. I'm blessed to the fact that like, I have this opportunity and you know, the memories, I can't even tell you anything specifically, but there's so many. And also like when Allah wins, those are some great memories too. Like usually they end with tears. Hopefully they're good tears, happy tears. There's some, a lot of sad tears as well, but man, like, do I have one? I would say winning Jet Surf was one, Sea Games was one. Uh, when Allah became the, you know, the first time when he became a middleweight champion, I went insane. I was in the locker room crying. I didn't fight, but I was crying. Wait, are you talking about when he won the middleweight champion? You're talking about the, the 2017 fight, right? With uh, Vitaly Big Dash number two. Yeah, yes, that's right, that's right. That was a good fight. We were there, you were actually ringside. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was, I was. And, uh, I was also there when it was Big Dash 1 and all I had to take the fight at a two weeks notice or something because the guy pulled out and all I took it with the deal that he would have a rematch. And uh, yeah, we ended up at the hospital, man. That was a brutal night. That was one of those downer nights where Allah survived five rounds. I mean, I was there at the corner and I heard the doctor say like, you guys want to throw in the towel? I know you guys don't want to out of respect and, you know, pride, but I can call it. And this coach was like, you're not calling it. He's going to fight. And I'll survive till five rounds, but you should have seen his face, man. That was brutal. That's a heart of a champion. Second, <laughs> I don't know anything about those technicalities of fighting, but I tell you, at that hospital, man, it was, it was rough, man. When you see your friend like that, you're just like, mm. but hey, you know what? The guy lasted five rounds. <laughs>
And then he came back on the second time, and uh, yeah, he came out as a champion. So that was the low, and then you get to the high again. You know, bro, you can't explain it, right? You cannot, like, I don't know. I will take this so that I will tell my grandsons this story, you know? Like, it's awesome. Wait, so when did your friendship with uh, Anla begin? Right, so if you look at ISY's photo albums, your books, you can take us back to third grade. <laughs> and then uh, all the way up to senior year. So he was, uh, so he was your ISY third grade friend that you still have beers with. I, I don't say we have beers anymore. Occasionally we do, maybe after a fight. But yes, yes, I've we've grown up together, so we kind of know who we are. You know, uh, at one point, I was a, a I kind of bullied him. But yeah, that day pretty much that day stopped at like grade seven or eight. We kind of teased him, and then yeah, he really chased us and really beat the crap out of us. So that day, all out became all out. <laughs> like no one's gonna mess with him. <laughs> When it comes to watching your friend in a fight, like, I can't even imagine that. I honestly, I don't think that I would be able to stomach seeing a friend of mine get into the cage and go five rounds with a killer, you know? When you go against another person at that level, it just shocks me. It's all on you. The whole crowd is watching to see one small mistake. The fight is a dance until one person makes a mistake and then whack! It is, man, you know, but these guys train hours, weeks, months, years to make that dance beautiful. That one second, yeah, that's years of training, you know, and they, they, they make it work. And in Allah's case, I mean, honestly, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that fight in a better style, but I can guarantee you right now, Allah's going to die in the ring or come out winning. So if you're going to fight someone, like especially Allah, just know that he's going to either die in there, get knocked out. If you can submit him, that's fine, you know. But the guy will fight with a broken leg, a broken jaw, and he won't even tell you. So in 2015-16, he called me and he was like, yo, I had this one championships during a fight in Yangon and hey, if you're, if, can you help me out? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, buddy. Like, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, like help me out with logistics and all that. I mean, initially I was like, oh, you know, because I was, I had a sports background and, you know, like he thought I could help out. And I was like, yo, you know, sailing, we don't require, it doesn't require killing people. You know, we just sail a boat. It's like, dude, you know, I have coaches for that. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to do my logistics, meals, and where can I work out? Like, initially, we, we had no idea. So the first time you stepped in the ring, and it's, you don't know. Yeah, you're right. You're watching your friend like, oh, God, this is, this is weird. But eventually, I swear to God, watching him right now is the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I have full confidence in Ola, and just watching him grow to be the, the fighter he is today, like he's Michael Jordan. I mean, you would you have to understand they have the same mentality. Their worth ethics, their their passion, their determination. Bloody hell, I haven't seen anything like that. Even as an athlete myself, I was like, I would have never given up that much. I would have never sacrificed that much. And if you truly know Allah's story, like the guy's come a long way, you know? And it was out of desperation. And you know, when you have a family and a young kid to feed, well, look at it this way. He often says, the guy in the cage who I'm gonna fight, he's between my son and I's meal. If I don't beat this guy, I can't feed my kid. When you have to fight a guy like that, good luck. Like, I'm not getting in that cage. If you're going to put me in a cage with Allah, give me an M16 and a couple of pistols and throw me a grenade. Because there's no way I'm getting in there, man. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Even well, if you shoot him, the guy will still come at you, man. <laughs> the nice thing about you getting in the cage with him is that he probably would take it easy on you, probably submit you. And, uh, and call it a win. Oh, he would toy with me like a lion toys <laughs> with his food, man. Like, no way. Like, I'm sorry, sir. He could be a dick about it. And he would be like, yo, Carl, hold my pad. Hold my pad. I'm like, I'm not holding your pad. I'm going to kick you softly, man. No one's holding my pad. Just hold my pad. You know? <laughs> and then he would kick me softly. And then he'd launch a, not a hard kick, but a medium kick. I got so pissed off, man. 
Like I thought he broke my ribs, man. What? Then, you know, you actually yeah, held the was... pad. Why would you do oh, that, Carl? Really? He thought it was funny as hell. I got so pissed off at him. I, I, I never did that again. Never did that again. I was stupid, man. <laughs> he thought it was funny at least. Before you actually have any experience with fighting or combat sports in in general, you don't know what it feels like to get punched or kicked. You don't actually know what what it's like to to enter a cage against. An opponent who's equally matched with you, and go five rounds like that. And at the end of that, at the end of that, come out and hug your opponent, and it's just a beautiful, oh, yeah. beautiful sport. I yeah. love that part about the sport. You live for that moment, and that's the type of guy I am. And in life, I, yeah, you know, I, I love being in those situations where, like, it's wild. The adrenaline kicks in. You know, it's like going to competition. It's like racing. I really enjoy that in life. If I had the same kind of mentality for business, I think I would be a little. No, I, I wouldn't say my. I, I can feel the same way about business. <laughs> business is business. It gets the money and puts food on the table, I guess. <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's who I am. I guess really. Yeah yeah. It's funny how like we we go through life thinking we'll we'll be one thing, and then you know life makes you question everything that you thought was true, and makes you question who you are. Yeah, I think that's pretty much ninety percent of the population there, right there. I mean, there are very few people that wake up like at five years old, you know, like that. I'm gonna be a footballer. Well, there's those kids too, and you can already see on YouTube like seven years old and doing things that a seven-year-old shouldn't do, you know. But you never know with life, man. There's, I always feel like there's always options in life. There's always a door A and door B. Once you go through that door, you shut it, and then you're left with another option: door A, B, or maybe C or D. And uh, yeah, you never know, man. And I mean, you can plan it out. I'm supposed to be an economist, and、I、ended up doing so much for sports. Like hell, I should have done, done sports management, you know. Like, who would have known, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Yeah. And I mean, it's 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 part of our era. It's part of the technological、uh, revolution. Myanmar, I feel, is in a very pivotal moment in history, and and because they they just opened up, and because they are, I think, in a position to leapfrog. So that's one good, like, positive outlook on Myanmar's future, I guess. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. You know, we we can't be judging Myanmar with other countries, and I don't think we should be comparing. We should be looking at as it is and finding what we can do to help the country, but not not follow the mistakes that other people did. And like you said, leapfrog. Speaking of helping the country and doing something good for the future, I think that's the perfect segue to go into Trash Hero Myanmar.、Uh, given that you are the Trash Superman, I'd like to get a lowdown on on what you're doing right now with the organization. I mean, it's been great. Our latest numbers.、Uh, we, I mean, when we started with one cleanup, that was, I believe, that was in 2015、uh, in the ELA.、Uh, we're we're now to 13 chapters.、Uh, we've done over 450 events. We've got 30,000 heroes that have participated in our events, which、uh, 10,000 were kids. So one out of three、uh, were kids below 16. And we've, you know, we've picked up nearly 90,000 kilos of trash. So numbers are great. Things are going well. COVID came along, everything halted. Ah,、uh, but you know what? It's like a vacation for us because COVID was probably the best thing that could have happened to the world in terms of trash, environmentally speaking. You know, the world decided to take a break, and it gave Earth a bird a chance to breathe. And although the numbers have not been come out, I- I'm waiting for the research. I'm waiting on the research and the data.、Uh, I'm still looking for it, but I want to know what the impact is on the environment because of COVID. I think out of all the things that the negative things that COVID has brought. I think that's a that's a really positive thing to look at. Well, trash. Other things for trash hero. You know what? You know, it's been it's been totally awesome. I you know there 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 have been challenges for trash hero, Myanmar,、uh, but honestly, like it's been good. It's been awesome.
That's great to hear, man. You're right. Uh, when it comes to pandemic affecting the environment, it's the ironic thing, right? Where the pandemic caused everyone to stop working, stop polluting the planet. And we see for the first time, perfect blue skies over places that have gigantic factories pumping out smoke. And it's a stark change in the reality of the situation. And all it took was a pandemic. <laughs> all it took was a virus. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, for me, like it's it's kind of good, you know. Okay, let's. I'm I'm speaking with my trash hero hat on, right? I'm, I'm, let's just focus on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, COVID to look at it on positive thing is one. It definitely shows that the world can unite and come together in terms of a crisis. Now, COVID, I think is I think one of the first major crises that we would realize that we, you know, it's globalization, we, we are one and we can all act as one. So when we had SARS, when we had the Spanish flu and all that, the world didn't react the way it reacted to COVID. I mean, COVID was the first of its kind. Yes, it had a lot of negative things, but one of the positive things that I see is that the world can act together in times of crisis. Now, COVID is a big crisis, but eventually we'll come over it. And eventually what's going to happen is climate change. And that's eventually going to come. Now, there may be those that argue with me and say climate change is a hoax. Uh, and there are fair and strong arguments to that as well. You know, they're saying this is a natural cycle that the earth goes through and humans are not the cause of it. But to me, I think they are. And I think we need to be ready when the climate change crisis does hit us, that we're going to be prepared and we have to act as one. Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. That's my, yeah, that's my thoughts on that. I think that that's 100% uh, true when it comes to what you're saying about humans affecting the climate. I think it's really difficult to deny that humans are affecting climate. Now, whether or not humans can can fix the problem that they've created, that's a whole separate issue. But that doesn't take away from the fact that trash hero Myanmar is literally cleaning up the streets. And uh, the fact that Inya Lake actually looks really quite nice now. I mean, given the fact that I've seen it in worse condition. The, one of the best parts of uh, an organization that's picking up trash is that you immediately see the difference. And it's a very worthy, noble pursuit for Myanmar especially to educate its people on how to, how to be better environmental citizens, you know? Because at the end of the day, we have one planet, we have, we have one world and we got to take care of it. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, sadly to tell you, you know, like after a cleanup, it looks nice, but you know, from my experience, give it two, three days and it's back to normal. Uh, but that is the sad reality that we face, you know, we would be so proud, happy when we do a major cleanup, but then you come back and do a site visit, you know, to do a review of the situation, you'll realize it's, it's the same. And the success that we've found is the persistence. I can go all over Yangon and pick up, but honestly, I, you know, I focus on certain areas and I try to come back to that area because we found that in ELA, the more you do it, I mean, honestly, it took me at least 15 cleanups to get to where we are. And that's because the people, the restaurants where we usually clean up in front of, they kind of got it and they're like, we feel bad for you guys. First, it was like, thank you, come again. We'll leave some trash for you. But now when we come, we start to feel bad. And I guess that's what the whole movement's about. Look, the cleanup thing is really nothing. You know, the cleanup is, it doesn't matter. We're not even making a dent. But the fact of the effort being made by volunteers, when you're not even participating, if you're looking at it from far away, you just realize like, oh my God, you know, I feel bad for these guys. I feel bad for throwing trash. And, and through that, we're trying to change a my, mindset. And that's what we've been trying to do. It's been working, but you know, Nimo has a long way to go. I mean, personally, this whole journey, like, I've been through 2015, I was going to change the world. And then like by 2016, 17, I started going to trash depression. 
what that is is that you soak up all the negativity about it like if i buy a plastic water bottle i start feeling sad um i'm with my girlfriend and we're in the middle of this beautiful scenery and she's like i love you baby and i'm like i love you too and oh my god there's a plastic bottle right there and i destroy the moment you know i mean it's got as good and bad things like i got to a point where i was like i realized i couldn't change the world that's it and i i was like why am i feeling bad about this you know so what if i buy a plastic bottle i mean i don't but sometimes i do but I won't beat myself up for it anymore. Right. Yeah, it's a trash depression. I got so depressed by it, dude. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not a technical term. That's a term I just made up. But I found out that there are other people that go through this, you know? <laughs> a lot of trash heroes go through it, especially the chapter leaders and all that. So again, what I'm trying to say is, you know, you're taught like, hey, this is gonna change the world, right? Mm -hmm. But eventually I found out three years later that, yeah, you're not gonna change the world. So, okay, let's just change Myanmar. So I focused on that and, well, that's not gonna happen. The greatest change you can possibly make is with yourself, right? And with your, your mindset. And then I think once that change happens, it permeates, it, it will influence others. Once they see what you're doing with your life and how you are and how it's beneficial to, to society, to the world, I think that's where it makes the most positive change. You know, like, I, yeah, I used to, I, do, I stopped talking. Uh, I didn't do any talks in 2019. In 2018, I kind of did some talks, but this is the first time I'm actually talking together about Trash Year. I have never talked about it. I've been uh, asked to do presentations. I've actually denied them uh, simply because I just kind of felt that if I'm going to go back out in the audience and say, please use a reusable bag, reusable bottle, you know, if I'm going to be that guy again, like I really want to practice what I preach. And honestly, I haven't been a good example of what I said to myself, but I'm being honest with you. Yeah. There are days and, you know, like, like there are times where I've been forgetting and I'm not doing a good job. I'm not doing the things I say. So therefore, I kind of kind of stopped. Like I couldn't go out in front of people again. And now I'm, I'm working on it again. And this is the first time I'm talking about it again. Dude, this is like going to gym, man. You know, it's like quitting smoking. Like becoming environmentally conscious and mining your CO2 footprint. These are like habits that you have to build. You can't simply change it within a year, yeah. but do you have to? Absolutely not. It's your choice. Okay. Absolutely your choice, you know, but eventually if we're going to deal with the inevitable, you know, if we're going to deal with Thanos, we will all have to collectively start changing our behavior. Uh, you know, the world's going to have a bit of an issue. I think 50 years or perhaps even earlier. We're going to be stuck in this place. Might as well, eh? Carl, he is the vice president of the Yangon Sailing Club and founder of Trash Heroes Myanmar. And that's it for this series of the Chinde Network podcast. On behalf of Chinde Network, I'd like to thank you all for the love and support you've given us. We created this podcast to connect and reconnect our alumni community and beyond. And we hope to add more thoughts, perspectives, and voices as we move forward together. Thank you for tuning in to our final episode of the Chinde Network podcast. Like always, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a thumbs up, leave a comment below, or send a message to chinte network at gmail.com. Stay healthy, stay safe.